25 years, the Acton Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has strived to help shape a society that is secure, free, and virtuous. As public virtue declines, so have many of our economic, political, and religious freedoms. On December 6th, Acton invites you to join us at our Public Spirit and Public Virtue Conference in Washington, D.C. This is your chance to engage with notable speakers and discover how to remain a civilization marked by order and public tranquility. To register or learn more, visit acton.org slash events. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G slash events. Any, any regime that allows even a bit of a statement of that human dignity that allows people to hope that somebody like the person of the Pope can stand up for that dignity is either going to be forced to restrain itself by laws or it will be delegitimized because in their hearts people will no longer believe it is at all legitimate or tolerable or, or fit for human beings. The voice you just heard was Titus Akera, talking with Bruce Edward Walker on the upstream segment of today's Radio Free Actin. Hey folks, this is Daniel Minjavar filling in for Mark Vandermoss this week. We have a packed show for y'all today. First up, Bruce interviews Gleaves Whitney. He's the director of Grand Valley State University's Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies, and also the senior fellow at the Russell Crick Center for Cultural Renewal. And Russell Crick is the topic of their conversation today. Following that, Bruce interviews Titus Akera on the new Amazon Prime series, Karma Detective, and the two talk about Titus's review on the Federalist uh, and the pro-market themes of this communist satire. Uh, all in all, we have a great show with some great stuff for you folks, so let me go and get out of the way and uh, get this episode of Radio Free Acting going. See you on the other side, folks. Today I am at the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal here in Macosta, Michigan. And each year the Kirk Center puts on an after Acton event where some of the Russell Kirk scholars in the United States all gather so that they can continue their conversations and sharing of information on the conservative scholar Russell Kirk. And today I'm talking with Gleaves Whitney who is the author of the introduction to the last edition of the American Cause. He's a Fulbright Scholar, a Grand Valley State University professor, uh, where he heads up the Howenstein Center for Presidential Studies, and they have just initiated a new program called the Common Ground Initiative. Hello, Gleaves. How are you today? Good to see you, Bruce. Great. Well, talk a little bit about uh, the Common Ground Initiative and, and what it is that you're doing there. Well, it's been so apparent for a number of years now that people believe that leadership is failing across the political spectrum. Our institutions are failing. If you look at Wall Street or Pennsylvania Avenue or Main Street, there just seems to be a lot of frustration with American leadership. Why can't people of a conservative disposition communicate anymore with people of a liberal or a progressive disposition and vice versa? So, Looking at this problem, I thought that there's got to be a way that the American university can play a role in bridging this divide. 
So we initiated the Common Ground Initiative. Uh, I did so by first submitting a grant to the National Endowment for the Humanities, and to my surprise, they were very supportive of the idea. This had been about four years ago, uh, 2012, 2013 is when we really got rolling with this, and we've had conferences every year since, or I call them summits, really, between progressives and conservatives. We put them on the same stage, and we invite them to engage in a dialectic, not a Hegelian dialect, but a, so a Socratic dialectic, a rigorous conversation where terms are defined rigorously, ideas are fleshed out, challenged, and some accommodation sometimes emerges. Now, the trick to this is to make sure that you do not ground the conversation in the latest story on Fox News or MSNBC, or that you don't uh, do an exegesis of something that appeared in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. The trick to this is to get your interlocutors to talk about, say, uh, Book 8 of Plato's Republic, where they have a deep uh, understanding of an idea or of a tradition, say Platonism and the idea of forms. Is there something in Plato from which we can take wisdom today? And you would be uh, just delighted by the number of times that if people, once they sort of back off from Fox News and MSNBC, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, back away from those and actually engage in conversation around a great book, they will rediscover sort of a humanistic ground, an anthropological ground for their ideas actually uh, making sense to each other. And this is where the Common Ground Initiative, I think, most succeeds. Uh, one of our most successful programs to date was when we brought in Robbie George and Cornell West, who teach together. Uh, they teach a wonderful course at Princeton I wish that I could take. And they were able, from their very different anthropological and theological views, to come together and talk about great books. And, you know, if, if you know how they talk to each other, uh, Cornell West was saying, you know, Brother Robbie's my, uh, he's my partner in the search for truth. And, you know, Brother George was saying, I could not do this without Brother Cornell. Cornell West helps me understand that other positions are possible when they come out of the tragedy of life, the suffering of life, and that I need to be a better listener. That's where authentic ideas often come from. We're not just abstracted ideas here. We're flesh and blood human beings struggling with these ideas. So that's a typical program. C-SPAN covers it. Uh, we, we videotape everything. If you go to howensteincenter.org, you can see this archive of all of our programs. Well, terrific. So, Gleaves. Tell me a little bit how this uh, deals with uh, Russell Kirk and, and a little bit of your journey that, that led you here to the, the Kirk Center. And I, I believe that happened in 1987. And I also recall a, a certain time, uh, maybe about five, ten years ago, where you and I were both giving speeches here uh, as an introduction to the work of Russell Kirk and the life of Russell Kirk. Uh, I think that uh, somehow I got put on the dais after you, which is uh, really kind of pathetic as um, I think I at the time I compared it to Led Zeppelin, you being Led Zeppelin, opening up for Iron Butterfly and that would be me and I only have one hit and that's Inagata De Vita. So anyway, why don't you uh, take it from there? <laughs> no, I remember that evening well and you comported yourself and delivered brilliant remarks that evening. Well, I do go back to 1987 in face-to-face -face conversations with Russell and a few years before that in uh, our correspondence and reading The Conservative Mind and grappling with the ideas. And what was apparent about Russell Kirk that appealed to me from the start was that 
he was part of a great civilizational tradition of understanding that you have ideology on the one hand, which is reductionist and tends to bleach out paradox and contradiction. And on the other hand, you have this humane Christian humanism, which accepts tension and contradiction and paradox as part of the human condition. So the man of letters, or some people call them the intellectuals, uh, the professors, really at their best are often dealing with and accepting, even embracing the contradictions and the tensions. And I'd look at a book like The Conservative Mind, look at, at Russell's great first uh, bestseller. It was his second book, but it was his first bestseller. And it really rocked American intellectual life in 1953-54 when it was published. And what Russell is doing in there is he's collecting a community of scholars who are roughly Burkeans, but they're really much bigger and much more than that. I think we tend, as teachers sometimes, we want to simplify for pedagogical reasons, say, well, this is a Burkean book. And it is a Burkean book, but it's more than that. It accepts more tension. And one of the tensions that I see most apparent in the conservative mind is the inclusion of a Frenchman who's not in the Anglo-American tradition uh, directly. It's Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville is fascinating because in the conservative mind context, he breaks a lot of the rules. He calls himself, for example, a liberal, a new kind of liberal in a world altogether new. Those are his words. We have to take him at his word for that. Even though the word conservative was available to him, he does not refer to himself as a conservative. So that got me to thinking. What was Russell Kirk thinking when he included a de Tocqueville in the conservative mind. Well, it's because de Tocqueville had categories of thought. He had an internal tension between himself as an aristocrat who had to be acceptable to a democratic age that was coming. He was laying out the, the categories of thought that would be necessary in the West's transition. He came to America to see where this was happening uh, in, a, in its most advanced state and in mo most vigorously. So I was fascinated by those tensions, and then that led me back to Russell himself, and I, I asked him, I said, uh, you're including Russell, or including Alexis de Tocqueville, shows that you accept a great deal of tension in the intellectual life here. And he agreed. He said, yes, you, you cannot finally be an ideologue who's going to bleach out all of these differences and ideas. De Tocqueville will continue to challenge us, uh, you know, so you have in the conservative movement uh, writ large, you have some people who cross very, very uh, steep divides. On the one hand, you have Richard Weaver, who is a dyed-in-the-wool Platonist. And on the other hand, you have a Frank Meyer, who is a dyed-in-the-wool Aristotelian. And yet they're part of the same movement. That's the glory of the conservative movement. It's not ideological. Neither the movement is ideological, nor the individual participants. And they are willing to engage in this rich conversation between Plato and Aristotle, between Adam Smith and, say, David Hume, or between Adam Smith and uh, Edmund Burke. This is the glory of this movement because it's so rich in its intellectual tradition. And Russell Kirk's genius was to pull this great community of minds and their conversation together. And I think also one of the, the great things about Kirk and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that uh, he was able to identify the enduring moral order from Adam Smith moving forward that there, this is, there's actually a moral basis, a religious spiritual basis to conservatism that, that gives it more power. 
That's exactly right, Bruce. You have to, when you look at the canons of conservative thought, and not just Russell's famous six canons in the introduction of the conservative mind, but the way a lot of people have tried to characterize and define the conservative movement, almost all of them express an appreciation that there is a moral order. Now, we must be careful to say that there are people who are called conservative who themselves are not believers. They acknowledge a moral order, but they're not true believers of any kind in the uh, the spiritual, the, the, the sense of, of signing up for a religion. I think of Richard Weaver, for example, who had a very, if you look at his his inner life to the extent that he reveals it, a very questioning, struggling relationship to Orthodox Christianity, where I look at Acton, Tocqueville. These individuals, uh, Weaver, Acton, Tocqueville, are all on the edge of orthodoxy. They're almost heterodox. They're almost heretical. And they were comfortable with being out there because they recognized the tension within themselves between science and faith, uh, intellect and feeling. Uh, they, they wrestled with these things, and that's very instructive. And that's, again, what humbles us and keeps us from being ideological with a one-size-fits-all, well, I'm just a pure, you know, say, analytic libertarian over here. Um, or I think Russell, even though he's considered largely a traditionalist, and I would certainly accept that classification, he's more than just a traditionalist. Again, he appreciates the tradition of debate and a lot of, of interior dynamic tension. Uh, Russell Kirk was smart enough to know that if you obsess on tradition, especially forms of tradition and not the content, like the, the canons uh, with a moral order, that that is a form of cultural despair if you retreat into traditionalism as an ideology. It's cultural despair. It has no shelf life. It will not be something that's part of the conversation. If Russell Kirk teaches us anything, it's how to be a conservative and be part of the cultural conversation and express these tensions and engage in others with tension. Well, and let's not forget that uh, Russell not only looked at uh, individuals like Edmund Burke and uh, Santayana that uh, preceded him, uh, Irving Babbitt, he was also very much embracing of the culture of uh, fiction and poetry. He, he was uh, an ardent fan of Nathaniel Hawthorne. He uh, uh, basically resurrected T.S. Eliot as a conservative hero. And uh, not only that, but uh, was great friends with, with not only Eliot, but Ray Bradbury. Russell Kirk understood a first principle, another first principle of conservatism, and it goes right to the heart of your podcast, the name of it, Upstream, which I find very compelling because I think the conservative tends to look at the human condition and understand that we must address the issues that arise in the human condition by our knowledge of culture, by working within culture, that politics and law, legal procedure, uh, technical solutions are downstream from the cultural solution. So this is why Russell Kirk would say, you know, behind most political problems, apparently, are transcendent problems, are actual spiritual problems. Does the human person have it right with creation? Uh, you, you need a, a large enough, a critical mass of people who are aware of that to solve these problems and not just run to the ballot box. The ballot box is a very superficial 
temporal and temporary solution, and it does not address sometimes the underlying alienation, despair, uh, the, the, the true deep-rooted problems in the human condition, which the authors you mentioned, whether it's a, a Hawthorne or a Dostoevsky or a Tolstoy uh, or, or Burke in his sublime and beautiful uh, essay, understand that there is a very complex human soul underneath these socioeconomic problems, and the conservative understands the importance of addressing that. And I will still maintain that that the conservative does not necessarily himself or herself have to be a believer in one of the theistic religions, but I think at a minimum has to appreciate that the believers compose a vital part of the society. We need those believers. We need people who read their Bible, who go to Mass. Uh, they provide what Russell Kirk called both order in the soul and order in society. And if you don't have that, uh, the sinner does not hold. Things do indeed fall apart, and your society becomes dysfunctional with a lot of problems uh, that can not be solved by a political agenda. You just get farther and farther away from the true solutions that Russell was always aware of, that these true solutions will arise from a passage in the book of Job, will arise from lines of poetry in T.S. Eliot, or, or William Butler Yeats, or Yeats, whom you just uh, exactly, quoted. Yes. exactly. I, I, it reminds me of uh, the the quote from uh, Dr. Kirk that Bradley Berser puts in his biography, where he quotes uh, Kirk as saying that politics is the realm of the quarter educated, which I, I I think is absolutely brilliant because there's. Politics is certainly important, but if it takes over more than 25% of your life, maybe you need to dial it back just a little bit. That's right. This is where maybe going back and having a healthy reading of Plato, the Republic, and Book 8 in particular, uh, will teach us once again that the true statesman also has to deal with the human soul. I think there was a book by George Will a number of years ago, years ago Statecraft, Soulcraft, which gets at that a little bit in a, in a different context. But I, I think that there is some truth to uh, this this apprehension of the human condition. Terrific. Well, Gleaves Whitney, thank you so much for joining me this week. I, I certainly appreciate it, and I hope to have many lengthy conversations with you later. So uh, this is Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Bruce. Hello and welcome to Upstream. This week we're going to be talking about a new Amazon Prime series called Comrade Detective. And uh, in reference to that, my friend Titus Sikera, who is a writer for The Federalist and National Review and Ricochet, uh, wrote a very nice piece in The Federalist this week on uh, Comrade Detective as a double agent for a pro-America perspective. And I'll give you a little bit of a background on, on, the, tele on, the, on the series. It's basically the premise is making fun of dubbing. And uh, if you recall from the 1960s, and I'm old enough to remember it, Titus I'm sure is not, What's Up Tiger Lily, where Woody Allen took a Japanese film and dubbed in new dialogue. It was quite funny. And well, you know what? It's still funny 50 years on. And this time, instead of taking a pre-existing movie, they did a television series. Uh, they invented it from 
Romania in the 1980s. So it's a send-up of 80s cop buddy shows, and it's also a setup to a send-up of uh, communism and uh, Cold War propaganda. So Titus wrote a, a wonderful piece on that. And why don't you give us a little bit of a background on that, if you would, please? Uh, sure. Thanks for having me on, first of all. Oh, and I, I should add that Titus is uh, talking to us from Bucharest, Romania. So uh, he has a little bit of uh, background information that uh, the rest of us are not privy to. Yes, and of course, as a local... I just get to look at it and try to figure out where did they shoot this. It was shot uh, last year and this year in Bucharest mostly. And uh, so you can recognize a lot of the place and it's quite a search to find the locales that will fit in nicely for 1980s dark gray starvation era Romania. But uh, they managed. Uh, that's, I guess, a credit to their uh, high-class production. But on the other hand, it's also a testimony to the fact that Bucharest has not transformed all that much. The show was filmed with Romanian actors uh, in Romanian. The dubbing was done afterwards, and it seems like Amazon may be looking to release the original language show as well, which I guess would be even more earnest, so to speak, even more deadpan. But at the same time, it it's uh, a show that very cannily mocks our latter-day progressivism. And throughout much of the show, it's impossible to distinguish what these cops, who are basically enforcers for a totalitarian tyranny, have to say from what you'd hear from an irate liberal on a college campus. It's shocking that such a thing was made and... Uh, it maybe takes, say, an episode to figure out what's going on, but when you see what the satire is about, you realize this is unique. Somehow nobody ever did this before. It's quite wonderful in that way. Yes, it is. A absolutely. And uh, both sides of the aisle are, are trying to claim this show for their own. Uh, National Review has uh, come out and said, well, this is an anti-communist. And um, Vice has come out saying that, well, this is... Uh, anti-capitalist. And um, I, I think you have a, a, a pretty good perspective on that in the essay that you wrote for The Federalist. So why don't, why don't you elaborate on it rather than me uh, parrot what your, your wonderful prose was? <laughs> uh, of course. So the... Unless you want me to dub that... in your voice, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, we can do our own version of Comrade Detective. Yes. Um, the the ironic premise of the show is that this was Romanian propaganda from the 80s, or rather Soviet propaganda in Romania. There's nothing particularly Romanian and nothing nationalistic about it. It's just Soviet communist stuff. This is merely a stand-in for the USSR. And uh, as you watch the series, it becomes very clear that while this is by no means a conservative or a libertarian uh, satire or something like that, it is a satire of liberal understanding of communism. For you to buy in, you'd have to believe that the policemen in this show are true blue communists, that they're fanatical believers. Of course, the 80s were an age of disillusionment throughout the Eastern Bloc. There was no communism to speak of, not even people in power believed in it. But the, the, the parody is too patent 
for even people say who don't care about history to swallow. So in my piece, I try to point out that there are certain things that just nod to the times, like in the third episode, which is thematically about uh, religion, uh, a communist uh, justifies beating up a priest in a police precinct in, uh, as part of a police inquiry by saying that belief in God is an insanity. What is a fundamental human right is not freedom of conscience. Healthcare is a fundamental human right. And it's a running conceit through the show that communist Romania has the best healthcare there is, which is more or less directly a send up of the insane things one hears from people like Michael Moore in regards to Cuba. <laughs> right. And you, there's also a uh, reference the, to uh, the literacy rates in Romania that is uh, spoken by the. Uh, the American diplomat. Yes, that's uh, uh, that, that, that's maybe the the weirdest scene in, in these kinds of exchanges about ideology because they have to have the American deplore the American situation and the the crime in America and the AIDS uh, epidemic and things of that kind while praising things about Romania. Just like the show shows you that in bars in Romania, competitive spectator sports are all about chess is another, it's not about Romania, it's about the Soviet Union and the fact that they had a great chess system that was mostly used for propaganda. The Soviets did not invest in chess, like Gary Kasparov would tell you, they just funneled talent to use for propaganda purposes. And so you see it on the show, people in bars drinking vodka and uh, commenting uh, chess game avidly. These kinds of scenes are supposed to show you just how far you'd have to stretch gullibility to buy any of this. The fact that the delivery is always deadpan and that the two communist cops are supposed to be beyond uh, fanatical about the virtues of communism shows you that you can't uh, play this straight without going into some kind of alternative dimension or insanity in this dimension. What you do have, on the other hand, is one opportunity after another to see the ways in which tyranny can be whitewashed, so to speak. So there is a fifth, the fifth episode is thematically about history. And in this case, the super cop decides to do a bit of research. So he goes to the rather modernistic National Library, which didn't even exist in communist times, but uh, he goes there for research. And what he comes up with is basically Howard Zinn, or what you'd hear on any college campus, that America was based on exploiting people of different colors. This was a big part of communist propaganda, and so it's rehashed here in, a, in this hilarious way. And its purpose in the plot is to say that if you want to catch this bad guy, American capitalist, you have to think like a capitalist. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it turns out that you can't tell the difference between a liberal and a communist because they both think that uh, capitalism is an essentially exploitative system. Now, in parallel with that theoretical uh, montage of propaganda, you get scenes where, for example, one cop tells the other, oh yeah, I know about this awful, awful America. One of my uncles ran away. The poor fool, he had to work for a living in America. He had to open a car wash. The other guy says, what the hell's a car wash? And so this guy explains, they exploit poor people to wash their cars because they're lazy. And it never worked out for my uncle. He worked so hard, but he just couldn't make ends meet. So he opened a second car wash. And that was <laughs> enough. He opened a third car wash. Oh, yes. And that's how you see how the ideology of capitalist exploitation is exploded. 
Right, it's, and, it's, and 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 it's played ironically to the hilt. To the hilt, you have a uh, the, the murderer wears a Ronald Reagan mask, and uh, they're trying to break up a black market in this uh, distribution of Bibles and Jordache yep. jeans, which uh, yep. we we all recognize as Jordash, which is a kind of a running gag through the first two or three episodes. It's actually quite funny and very very cleverly done yes it is and uh, some of it is is so the, for example with the jeans right uh, it turns out that uh, if you start a black market in jeans you could start a riot because people are so desperately eager and these communists can't explain to themselves why would anybody care in, in this perfect paradise of communism why would anybody bother well it's because it's a fairly starvation levels economy <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, anything that tells you you could get some goods that you maybe need turns into a political revolution. Right, or, or, or gluttony, where, where you see every American is, uh, instead of giving mints at a reception desk, they get give Twinkies. And anytime an American is actually sitting behind a desk, they have a plate full of hamburgers that they munch on willingly and, and freely. So Yeah, and, and they're mostly super fat. And they're it's, mostly super uh, fat, yes. Which, of course, is what you'd expect to see. For, you know, that's the perspective from uh, North Korea, let's say. <laughs> but now it's done deadpan in a show. It's, uh, this is quite unprecedented. Right. So why don't we wrap up by having you maybe explain a little bit about... Um, how uh, religion is depicted and how religion actually helped eradicate uh, or bring the, down the uh, the Iron Curtain and bring us into the modern world. Sure. So the third episode, which as I said is about religion, features two scenes that are very important to the show. One of them is this demonic underground cult with orange-red lights and, and shadowy figures. It turns out to be an underground Catholic church. Now, Romanians are almost unique in the Eastern Bloc because the, Romania is an Orthodox country rather than Catholic. And so it's even more plausible that there would be underground churches for Catholics, which were a real phenomenon in, say, Czechoslovakia and other communist countries. And it turns out that these people are hounded, but for that reason, they're seen as demons. And the guy who moonlights as a priest is a baker by day. And in the only that scene in the show that's really not comical, he looks at these communist cops and asks them, if you sign yourself here, if you make the sign of the cross, does that transubstantiate the bread? Is there some kind of holiness that could emerge out of the ordinary? That's an amazing scene. And of course, it recalls the, the kind of influence that Pope John Paul II had in Poland Precisely. and throughout the Eastern Bloc. Yes. A man who had no importance practically or politically, um, was the answer to the famous remark of Stalin, how many divisions does the Pope have? The Pope does not have divisions, but he undermined the authority and the legitimacy of the communist regimes without making political protests, simply by appealing to people's sense of community, or as it was called in Poland after the syndicate, solidarity. It reminded people that certain essentials of human dignity cannot be negotiated. And any, any regime that allows even a bit of a statement of that human dignity that allows people to hope that somebody like the person of the Pope can stand up for that dignity 
is either going to be forced to restrain itself by laws or it will be delegitimized because in their hearts people will no longer believe it is at all legitimate or tolerable or, or fit for human beings. And that, that turned out to be a great influence in the 80s and a great spur to action and to coordination. And the underground churches were, were greatly relieved and, and they were enlivened, reinvigorated by this kind of message. We're talking about countries where there were priests who were even married, although they were Catholic priests, because they had to be undercover. Priests who had spent their lives as priests in secret so that their own mothers would not know the truth. That's how scared they were of communism. And at the same time, that's how strong their faith was. And uh, a lot of this came forward because of Pope John Paul II, came out into the light and became a strong social coagulant and a principle around which people could gather. It's not that everybody in the Eastern Bloc was Christian or Catholic or very faithful, but they understood immediately what human dignity meant and that now it had a face and a voice. Titus, thank you so much. I, I, I do appreciate uh, your, your comments and uh, I, I could not agree with you more. I, I think that uh, the show is a lot of fun, but it has a very, very serious message under underlying it, undergirding it. And I, I would like to thank you for joining us today. Titus Chichera is a graduate student in political science and liberal arts. He's a Publius Fellow and a roving writer for Ricochet and National Review Online. Uh, appears frequently in The Federalist. I always look forward to his articles and enjoy them immensely. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, and let's talk again another time. Sounds, sounds terrific, sir. Take care. And for Upstream, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. We'll talk to you next week. Well, that brings us to the end of another Radio Free Actin. We've uh, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, please let us know if there's things we can do to make it better and improve. We've also opened up a phone line where you can leave us a questions for our mailbag segment. Uh, you can reach us at 888-705-4180. Leave us a question there, uh, something you want answered, economics, uh, faith, the intersection of the two. Or uh, drop us a line through our email address at uh, rfa at acton.org. Uh, see if we can select a question and uh, maybe even have it played on air uh, here on the on the podcast. Uh, if you like the show, please feel free to share it with uh, with friends and family, uh, people you think might be interested. Uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. Once again, I'd like to thank Bruce Edward Walker this week for the great work he does. It's always a pleasure. Uh, as well as uh, our guests, uh, Gleaves Whitney and uh, Titus Akara for coming on to the show. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, with that, thanks so much, folks. And I guess we'll we'll see you on next week for another episode of Radio Free Action. Till then, have a good night. Institute in Grand Rapids, Michigan, has been promoting a free and virtuous society for over 25 years, working with religious leaders, educators, business leaders, and students from all over the world. Acton is the connection between religion and business based on sound economic and moral principles. To support the great work that the Acton Institute does around the world, visit give.acton.org today. 
Again, that's G-I-V-E dot A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G.